Well, hey, good morning. If you would, make your way back to your seat. Grab your Bible. Open up to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of these blue hardback Bibles. Turn to page 962. You know, it's been a fun weekend. We had a comedian here on Friday night, and I'm looking forward to our next uh, big event in a couple weeks with the yard sale. And hopefully you're going to be shopping and, uh, you know, inviting your friends and neighbors uh, to the yard sale. It's pretty sweet to think uh, that our church has been going to Mexico for something like 30-some years. Uh, It's sweet to see the body of Christ alive throughout all the generations, isn't it? Uh, This uh, series that we're starting now is our our Lenten series. This year, we're going to stay in the Sermon on the Mount, but we're actually going to use the seven deadly sins as our guide to look at this sermon. Today, we're going to be looking at pride, uh, but not just the vice of pride, but also the virtue of humility. So with that in mind, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of these blue hardback Bibles. They should be all throughout the room. You can turn to page 962. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, please take one of these blue Bibles home with you. Uh, It's a bestseller. If you've never read it, you won't regret it. It's a great book. Uh, Did you know it's the best-selling book every year for all of time? Uh, In fact, it's not even listed on the bestseller list because it outsells everybody. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to look at a couple of verses today, but friends, I'm going to talk to you today about the vice of pride and the virtue of humility and how only the gospel of Jesus Christ really gives us the humility that you and I need. With that in mind, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's keep our Bibles open as we pray together in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Uh, Lord, for repentance, for new desires, for a new passion for your glory, and a new desire to be like your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that is our prayer this morning, that we would release pride and that we would embrace humility and that we would see it in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Uh, well, during Lent, during this season, Christians for uh, centuries, uh, over a thousand years, have focused on three primary things. Those things, uh, those spiritual disciplines or habits, whatever you want to call them, uh, actually come from the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were with us on Ash Wednesday, you'll know maybe what those three things are. Uh, if you don't know what they are, turn in your Bible, maybe a page, and go to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, If you remember, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' greatest collection of teachings. It comes from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 6, we're introduced to three spiritual disciplines or habits or practices, whatever you want to call them. And if you look down, you can see them clearly taught here in Jesus' sermon. Look at verse uh, chapter 6, verse 2. What does Jesus say? Thus, when you give to the needy, not if, Christian, but when you give to the needy. That that is a habit, a good habit, a way of life. It's a rhythm of life for Christians 
to always care about the poor and needy. So Jesus doesn't say, if you decide at some point in your life to care about the poor, he says, when you do, here's how to do it. Look at verse 5. When you pray, not if you pray, Christian, but when you pray, this is how you pray. And how do we pray? Well, the last several weeks, I've been going through this uh, Lord's Prayer in this very passage, which is at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we don't decide uh, if we pray. As Christians, we do pray, but we pray in a certain way. And then look at verse 16, Christian. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, if you decide to be a weirdo and fast, this is how you do it. No, what does he say? He says, when you fast. Not if, but when. Fasting means we go without something we normally enjoy so that we can empty ourselves and be empty vessels for God to work in us. You know, when I think about Lent, it's a time for uh, self-reflection. It's a time to look inward. It's a time to remove things uh, from my life, to remove distractions. I have learned something. Are you ready for this? I'm not even going to charge you for this. This is just free advice. Guess what? I felt like for the last several months of my life, that time is flying by. Has anybody felt like that? I'm like, where did the day go? But guess what? I took everything off of my smartphone and I can't listen to any more podcasts and I can't surf the internet and I'm fasting from all kind of yummy food and drink. And guess what? Oh my gosh, the day is so long. <laughs> it's a miracle. I'm at home and I'm like, man, it's like 520. And then like a lifetime passes and I'm like, it's 543. When is dinner? It's a pro tip. That was a pro tip. Fasting lengthens your day. But in all seriousness, Lent is this time for reflection. It's a time for you to devote more time to repentance and prayer. It's a time to perhaps fast from something that's taking life away from you. And it's a time to maybe spend less on buying things for yourself and maybe more time giving of your time to serve at the Medford Gospel Mission or to serve at a yard sale to help the poor in Mexico. Or it's an opportunity for you to give to the deacon's box, which goes to our ministry to the poor. Maybe it's a time to be generous to the people parked at the intersections asking for a handout. It's a time for reflection. Uh, you know, and I'm, I want you to th hear me because when you and I do these spiritual disciplines, I'm not telling you that you, somehow that you and I are saved by our good works, that somehow God's like, well, now I'm really happy with Dustin now that he has gone without alcohol for 40 days. Now I'm really happy. That's not how God operates, right? That's not how we justify ourselves. In fact, we can't justify ourselves. But what has proven true in my life is that as I've really come to really believe in God's love for me and in the power of the gospel. And I hope and pray that as the Holy Spirit has transformed me very slowly into more and more like Christ, I have an internal desire to be rid of sin and to be more like Jesus because my sin holds me back from being like Jesus. It's not just I want to let go of bad habits. I want to take hold of that which is truly life. That's how Paul talks about the vice of greed. He says, they have lost that which is truly life. And it's the root of all kind of evil. But don't worry, we'll get to greed in a few weeks. 
What I want to suggest to you, though, is this Lenten series uh, really un, uh, you know, unpacks, I think, what Paul sees, right? The gospel has transformed his life. He's saved by God's grace alone. He sees Jesus died for his sins, and he knows that by believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God's Holy Spirit and Paul's spirit are like this forever, so that the Holy Spirit makes him want to be who he was always meant to be. Wants to, he wants to put sin to death and live to Christ. If you came to our Ash Wednesday service, uh, what did we do? We said dead to sin, but alive to Christ. You know, uh, I've got a, a mentor from Memphis. I love him. He's great at making barbecue. And uh, he described Ash Wednesday. He said, look, y'all, the church is the only organization in the world that can literally rub death in your face. <laughs> but you know why? Because we can back it up with eternal life. It's ash, yes, but it's in the form of the cross. Dead to sin, alive to a new way of life. Isn't that beautiful? Listen to how Paul talks about the change that the gospel does for him. He says... He uses the analogy of an athlete and the need for every athlete to kind of discipline themselves, right? He says, don't you realize that in a race, everybody runs, but only one person gets the prize. So Christian, run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training and they do it to win a prize, but their prize fades away. But we do it for an eternal prize, so I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training my body to do what it should. Because if I didn't, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You see, Paul is motivated by the gospel to discipline himself, to say no to certain things so that he can say yes to a new way of life. Uh, for these next uh, uh, few seven weeks, we're going to go through the seven deadly sins. Uh, there's a great uh, pastor and professor, Jared Wilson. He teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, he wrote a great little book on the seven deadly sins, and he called them the seven daily sins <laughs> because they actually lurk in our hearts. I love that. But friends, what we're going to go through as we look at lust and gluttony and sloth and greed and envy and pride and anger is not just what those vices are. I really want you to remember that we are to pursue virtues, the characters of Christ, right? The character traits of Christ. So as we let go of pride, we become what? Humble. When Jesus says, you know, do not commit lust in your heart for someone, He's calling us not just to not lust, but to do what? To be chaste. Ooh, there's an old-time word. When you and I are called to give to the poor, we're to let go of greed so that we have more to give. To be generous. Instead of envying one another, we choose mercy. Instead of anger, we become meek. It's a whole new way of life not based on works righteousness. Well, let me step back. It is based on somebody's good works. It's just not ours. And it's empowering us by the Spirit to live into who we were always meant to be. So if we're going to tackle vice in our life, we're going to pursue virtue. We're going to see all of these things, all of these things in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And what we're going to tackle today, Lord willing, is we're going to look at pride, and then we're going to see how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, uniquely gives us humility. Not kind of how the world gives humility, but a, a genuine humility. So what is pride, right? So let's look at pride, and then we'll look at uh, humility, right? So, uh, you know, we think of pride, and we often think of somebody who's really arrogant. Uh, you know, you may have heard that there is such a thing as the unholy trinity of pride. Have you ever heard of it? What's the unholy trinity of pride? It's my three favorite subjects, me, myself, and I, right? The unholy trinity of pride, right? There, it's a disordered self-love, right? It's being obsessed with ourselves, being easily offended, thin-skinned. Oh, how dare they do that to me? C.S. Lewis, writing on pride in Mere Christianity, said, if there was one vice of which no person in the world is free... It is pride. Every person in the world loathes it when they see it in someone else, and hardly anybody in this world thinks it's a sin except Christians. <laughs> There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. And ironically, the more pride we have, the more we dislike it in others. <laughs> According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Lust, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's hard to see it in ourselves, but man, when you're around somebody who is arrogant or full of themselves, man, it is so easy to see in other people. You want me to prove that to you? I bet there's a bunch of people in the room right now thinking, I wish so-and-so was listening to this sermon. <laughs> if only he was here. If only she heard this, right? Right? Easy to see in others. Hard to admit that it's in you and me. But what does the gospel give you and me? It gives us humility. And it teaches us to say, I am the man. Not, I'm the man, but like when David was confronted with the sin and the prophet told him, you are the man. What did David say? I am the sinner. There's a humility that the gospel gives because what it says, friends, is our sin is so bad. We are so broken that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could redeem us from the pit. We don't need better habits. Well, I don't know, some of you maybe do, but that's not really what we need. We don't need better habits. We don't need moral advice. What Jesus says is you need to be born again from the inside. You need to be completely made new. And that only comes through the gospel. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you. I mean, I could go into the history of virtue and vice and great teachings. But, you know, when I think about pride, I thought I would simplify it down to an image that my mind can sort of understand. And hopefully this is helpful to you. So, you know... Um, let me use an object lesson. If you don't know me, I'm not above an object lesson, okay? So, uh, yeah, all right, so let's see. We'll do a test, all right? Anybody know what this is? Anybody know what this is? Well, it's this amazing, you know, device <laughs> that no matter how many layers I pull off of it, guess what? 
there's another layer behind that one. You know what this is? What, what is this? No, it's not. It's an organic onion, you monsters. No. You know what this is? What is it? It's a heart of pride. It's a heart of pride. And it doesn't matter how many layers of pride, you know, we think we can peel off. Guess what? They all stink. <laughs> and we think we've made progress when we've pulled off some of the layers. But guess what? They're all pretty bad. You know, when I go to In-N-Out, I'll confess, when I go to In-N-Out for a hamburger, um, I always order raw onions. Don't judge me. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like a hobbit, you know? And I'm like, I want them raw and wriggling, you know? Like I need like somehow the, the naturalness of the raw onions gonna offset the grease of the, fi the fries or something. But it's funny because I don't mind having onion breath. I really don't. I'm like, whatevs, I'm just gonna have onion breath. But what's funny is if Caroline is in the car with me, and she's like, should I get onions? I'm like, no way, I gotta kiss that mouth. No. <laughs> when I eat onions, I don't even think about it. But whew, have you ever been around somebody with onion breath? It's horrible. Hard to see it in ourselves. We're willing to take a bite. We're willing to eat it, but we don't like it in other people. You know, um, and it's crazy because nowadays, you know, we talk about, you know, Pride Month and we use that as a virtue. And yet for thousands of years, pride has been seen as actually the thing that destroys relationships. You know, I mean, to me, that's like, let's call it onion breath pride or something, right? Why would we be proud of our stinky breath of pride? What I want to suggest to you is the way that Jesus offers us new life the necessary first step to understand who Jesus is, to understand the kingdom of God, to repent of our sins and trust in God's forgiveness, to know who God is, to know who we are supposed to be, the necessary first step, the irreducible first step is to humble ourselves. Look at Matthew chapter 5 our passage this morning. Look down at Matthew chapter 5. This is the greatest teaching on ethics ever given. Jesus says things like, you've heard other people say, hate your enemies and love your neighbors. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard other people say, screw those people, they're awful. But I say to you, if you hate your neighbor in your heart, you are in danger of hellfire. You've heard it said, divorce your wife, it's all good. But I say to you, do not even commit adultery in your heart. Jesus says the most profound words in human history. And it kind of sounds like what we would imagine God would actually say to us. If God really did become a human, he would say these kind of words to us. The very first thing out of Jesus' mouth is what? Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowds. Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, taking the posture of a good Jewish rabbi, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And the first words are what? Blessed, happy, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble in their spirits. 
To be poor in spirit doesn't just mean you have to be poor physically. It means having a humble heart. And what does Jesus promise those who enter by humility into the kingdom of heaven? That they will get it. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a hard message for every person to hear. You know why? Because no matter how much we work on our pride, guess what? There's always more. No matter how many layers of pride we pull back, it seems like we get into traffic and somebody cuts us off and guess what? (laughs) Something's stinking. Jesus is opening the door of the kingdom of God itself, but he says, first, you must humble yourself. You must humble yourself. You must let go of pride and take hold of that which is truly life. If you go to Matthew chapter 6, if you flip a page, you know, I've already talked to you about this a little bit, but, you know, those three spiritual things that you can do during Lent, praying, well, how could you ever pray wrong? And he says, well, give to the poor. And then he says, fast. I mean, is it possible that any of those things could ever go wrong? That we could ever do them from a place of pride? Well, what's astonishing is if you read Matthew chapter 6, all three of those things, even prayer itself, Jesus says, beware that you don't do it with a heart of pride. Don't, when you pray, go by yourself. Don't go around where everybody can see you. He says, when you fast, don't be like, look how spiritual I am. I am fasting of everything ever. He says, don't even let anybody know what you're fasting from. And then when he says, when you give to the poor, don't blow the trumpet and say, look at me. I am giving to the poor. What he says is, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What is Jesus telling us to do? To let go of pride and to take hold of true humility. Now, you may be thinking, well, how in the world, Dustin, am I supposed to do that? If you're telling me my little stinky heart is an onion (laughs) and I hate the smell of onions in other people's mouths, where's the hope? What am I supposed to do with like a stinky onion heart? (laughs) Well, friends, this is where the gospel comes along and does something entirely different than help or life advice or a self-help book at Barnes & Noble. Because what Jesus Christ has the audacity to say to you and me is he says, I'm not just going to peel back all these layers. What you need is something entirely differently. Some of you have heard me say it before. How do you stop thinking about the onion in my hand? What do you do? You think about the orange in this hand. There's a really religious guy. Uh, his name was Nicodemus. You can read about him in John chapter 3. Probably, you know, we would say he grew up in the church, knew right from wrong, probably had good parents. And he comes to Jesus and he's like, what's this whole kingdom of God thing about? Like, what, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. You must be born of water and baptism. And you must be born of the spirit, which is what baptism is all about. You must be born again. And Nicodemus says what? How can an onion become an orange? And Jesus says, it's a metaphor. Right? He goes, how am I supposed to go back into my mom's womb? And Jesus is like, take it easy. It's a spiritual metaphor. But it's also the most true thing that Jesus could have said to him. The way that we get a new heart is not by peeling back enough layers. It's by having a completely new heart. 
You know, the Old Testament said there would come a day when God would send forth his Holy Spirit and he would remove hearts of stone and he would do what? Replace them with a heart of flesh. He would take something that's in the grip of pride and he would replace it with brand new life. And only then can you have true humility. You know why? Because if we look to our own pride, if we look at ourselves, we just try to work on humility. You know what we do? We're like, hmm, I'm pretty humble. I'm less proud than that arrogant jerk over there. But is that really humility? Um, this may not make any sense to you. Okay, so, all right, let me sit back. All right, maybe this makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. It makes sense to me. And I hope it makes sense to you. Um, but track with me for just a second. Just hang, just hang in there, okay? Uh, what I want to suggest to you when you think about letting go of pride and you think about a new life built around humility, humility that the gospel gives you and me, uh, the humility that is demanded of every Christian who kneels at the foot of the cross and says, that, that should have been me. That kind of humility changes you forever. If you really know the depth of your sin and you really know the depth that God went for you, you're a different person forever. You have a new heart. You are reborn, right? So hang in there because I want you to track with me. I want you to see, friends... Um, the world wounds, right? The world wounds us. But I want you to see that the gospel breaks us. The world wounds, but the good news of Jesus Christ breaks our spirits. What do I mean by that? Hang in there. You and I, when our pride is offended... We get wounded. Uh, when we think about the people who have wronged us, we get more wounded. And that's what the world says. Be wounded, keep a record of wrongs. And how do you heal a wounded heart? You can't. All it can do is harden. So eventually you say, ah, screw it. I don't like those people anyway. <laughs> wounded hearts grow hard. And that's what the world wants to do to you and to your soul. It wants it to be hardened. But think about it this way, friend. If you and I are wounded by this world, can we approach a wounded animal? If you saw a wounded coyote, you know, out in the backfield, and you're like, oh, I want to give him a little piece of beef jerky. Poor guy's wounded. What would happen if you approached a wounded animal? Or if you saw a wounded deer with big old, you know, antlers, would you approach a wounded deer? No, because a wounded animal, you don't know what it's going to do. A wounded animal cannot distinguish friend from foe. Now consider this. Horse people. Where, raise your hand if you're a horse person. You know, you like draw horses in your journal and stuff or you ride horses, you know? Horse people, okay? Horse people, I'm talking to you. Can you ride an unbroken horse? Can you ride a horse that has not been trained? What do you have to do to really teach a horse to canter, to trot, what has to happen to a horse for it to know the intimacy of the rider and the horse at full gallop? The horse has to be broken first. It means it has to be trained. 
It means it has to learn to trust the master. You see, friends, I see a lot of people in this life, and they are wounded by this world. And I look at them, and I think, I, my heart breaks for wounded people. But if the gospel doesn't come in, their hearts are going to be as hard as this pulpit. But what the gospel of Jesus Christ has the audacity to say <laughs> is you and I, we are like wounded horses, and we need the true master to come. And when he reaches out, he has scars in his hands, and we need to be broken horses. The world wounds, and that leads to hard hearts. The gospel breaks us, but guess what? It breaks us so that it can heal us, so that we can know freedom, so that we can have the intimacy of the rider, and we can know what it's like to be at full gallop in morning light in the open field. Friends, that's the audacity of the claims of Jesus Christ. He throws open the doors of the kingdom of heaven, and he says, first, you must let me humble you. You must humble yourself. You must let go of the stinky onion. And you must trust me that I can replace the onion with the orange. And notice, friends, I am not speaking as the person who is to break you. I am not telling you to bow down to any human or any pastor or any spiritual director. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, alone has the authority to say, let me break you so that I can heal you to use the horse analogy. Why should you let Jesus do this? Why should you humble yourself? Well, whenever the disciples meet Jesus, that's exactly what we see them doing. Like Peter literally falls on his knees and he says, Lord, I am a sinful man. <laughs> Lord, I am wounded by this world and I'm angry and I do not deserve to, to have you as my master. You know, why should you trust Jesus? Well, what I want to suggest to you, friends, is Jesus is the only one who has the right to say this to you. And he's the only one that has the right to say this to me. Humble yourself completely before me. And Jesus Christ can claim that right because he is God in human form. Only God has that right. <laughs> only God can say, humble yourself completely before me. But not only is Jesus God, I want, you to, I want you to grasp something about the message of Christianity, which is not only does God have the right to do it, what's astonishing when you study the Bible and when you study the teachings of Jesus is Jesus teaches us that at his very heart is humility. Jesus Christ himself is the most humble person to ever walk this earth. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this to all people, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He says, if you trust me as your master, I will teach you to gallop. <laughs> but as long as you're the wounded animal that you are, you will not know friend from foe. And one day your heart will be so hard, no call of the gospel will get through. Why should you trust Jesus in this way? I'd encourage you during this season of Lent to, uh, alongside me, confess our sin of greed, our sins of lust, all of our sins, but primarily our sin of pride, and to humble ourselves and say, Lord, give me a humble heart. 
Why do we do that? Well, if you're a Christian in the room, I want to give you some great encouragement, which is if the Holy Spirit and your spirit really are like this, if the gospel's true and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, you already have this desire to be truly humble. You know, Paul says it this way. Notice what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Christian, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests alone, but also to the interests of others. Have this mindset among you, which is already yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. If we want humility, humility is found in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself for us, who let go of pride. He didn't even count his, his Godhead, his, his godness to be something to be grasped, but he'd emptied himself of that. And why would God embrace humility to his core? Why did God do that? For you. For you, Christian. He did it for you. Uh, when Lent's over, uh, we'll do Holy Week, which is the week leading up to Easter. And we do, uh, you know, our, our Maundy Thursday service. It's on Thursday, don't forget, of Holy Week. And Maundy comes from mandatum, which is commandment. It's easier to hear it when Pastor Richard says it, commandment, right? Maundy Thursday, right? So that's how you hear it. It means commandment Thursday. What's the commandment? to love one another as I have loved you. And what happens before they take communion for the first time? What does Jesus do? Anybody remember? What does Jesus do before he gives them communion for the first time? Jesus, Jesus, the son of God, the king to end all kings, the guy who made their toenails and their DNA, wrapped a cloth around his waist and washed their stinking feet. And when he gets done, he says, do you realize what I've done? I have left you an example. Friends, blessed are those who let go of the onion, who embrace the humility of the gospel. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we praise you that humility is at your very core. Uh, Lord, we confess our sin of pride. Uh, Lord, we ask that more and more that you would conform us into the image of your son. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. We want to let go of the onion and we want to be the new orange in Christ. Lord, we want to be new men and women. Lord, we lift up to you this season of Lent. Lord, would it be a true time of fasting and prayer and giving to the poor? 
But even in that, Lord, would you keep us from doing those things in a way that would be tainted by pride? But Lord, that we would truly pray in humility. We would give to the poor in humility and see ourselves in them. And Lord, that as we would fast, we would do so in a way that we would be empty vessels, eager to do your will. Lord, we pray for those who can't be with us right now, those who are sick, those who have come out of surgery. And Lord, please have mercy on each one of them. Lord, we think about the other churches here in our uh, beloved Rogue Valley. And Lord, we lift to you this morning, Applegate Community Church and Pastor Will. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would give him a fresh anointing of your spirit and the gospel would go forth through that church and through its members. Lord, we ask the same for ours as well. Lord, we finish up praying for Tommy Allen, our church planter in Spokane right now. Although we don't know what Tommy is doing this very moment, but Lord, we pray that he would have a divine meeting with someone. Lord, that you would guide his path so he preaches your gospel to someone today that needs to hear it. Lord, we pray that that church would thrive and grow, and in years from now, we would hear of baptisms and new births, of people coming to life, going from death to life because of the preaching of the gospel. Lord, we lift to you our youth mission trip. Lord, we lift up the teenagers. And Lord, would you especially bless them with your spirit. Lord, we ask for humility and we ask knowing that we will receive all that we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.